you know, so it's not something you can disregard. It's not something marginal. It's not, it's not a fad. It's something that is here to stay and is only going to have um, more, more and more significant impact, both on the business model and in fact on the creativity itself, which is something we could talk about. You know, I, I'm sure we will talk about is, you know, to what degree do we want AI to be involved in the um, sort of filtering and creation of content itself. So hello and welcome back to the ZF Spectrum. My name's Brandon Ruff. Uh, my name's Lizzie Hodgson. And today we are joined by Dr. Alex Connock, who's a fellow in management practice at Side Business School in Oxford, specialising in media and AI. There he is also co-director of the new Oxford Diploma in Artificial Intelligence for Business. Prior to working at Oxford, Alex had a substantive career in television and the media world. He was the co-founder and CEO of Tenout, started with Bob Geldof, before becoming the managing director of Endemolshine North. More recently, he founded Missile Digital Studios that explores the meeting point of academia, AI and content. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Um, it's been a hectic day, but I'm very much been looking forward to this conversation. Lizzie and I work heavily in this space, so it's been on one of the exciting ones on our agenda for quite a while. Um, so I'd love to kick off and um, let you tell us a bit about your journey in media and how you got to this point. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Is that, by the way, is that the, the lockdown couch from which your whole lockdown has been conducted? Yeah, essentially. <laughs> um, I sometimes sit at the, the, the sofa, but, or not at the sofa, at the table, but the sun comes in and hits my eye at this time of day. So I have to very much firmly stay here in the mid-afternoon. What I like about what you've got, Brandon, is clearly you've got a blanket behind you that you go, oh, it's getting a bit chilly now, so I'll just stay yeah. here. <laughs> and everything, you know, just stay there, stay snug. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Okay, so, so, so back to the question. So, mm -hmm. so when I started out in the 1990s, when television was actually just revolutionizing, um, so it became, because of the technology, and that's the sort of theme that we'll probably be talking about today, is the technology drove the creativity, and television became much less studio-based, because people were mm -hmm. able to have these small handheld cameras um, that they could kind of carry around with them and even live broadcast from. And that enabled people to do all kinds of things like um, kind of studio shows, but in the wild, like, um, uh, you know, not using tape anymore, or at least not so much, breaking the fourth wall, you know, where you reveal what was going on behind the scenes. And so that was a real revolution. There was a whole wave of TV shows that I was part of um, that they exploited that technology. And then as we went into the 2000s, we saw you know, what we now know of as the digital revolution or the digitalization of TV, you know, when tape obviously morphed into um, digital media of various kinds. You know. And of course the internet really got going. So that was another big change. So I already had, by, even by the millennium, I'd probably lived through two big changes. And then since then, you've seen a kind of Game of Thrones style, systematic smashing of traditional media sectors. You know, and, and, and essentially every media sector has found itself at some point or other in a sort of really nasty, brutal Game of Thrones style battle where whole castles are being demolished at a rate of knots, you know, and that would go for everything from music to TV to film and so forth. So we've seen the commercial TV model completely smashed up by digital advertising, which depending on which figures you take could be as much as 60% of all global advertising now. We've seen advertising agencies challenged by the kind of duopoly of Google and Facebook and then by programmatic advertising in general. We've seen the BBC license fee model, which has been one of the pillars of the UK um, media establishment, 
heavily challenged, you know, existentially challenged, and some would say, by the streaming model and by globalized competitors who, who now have bigger budgets than the BBC and, and, and actually managed to make an organization with 3.4 billion pounds of annual income look like a sometimes a small player in the global scene. And so, 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 so throughout that whole period, different waves of technology have, have smashed over the, um, over the industry. And it's been kind of both fun and slightly scary to be part of all that. And at each time, I have known a generation of people who have made fortunes. And I think, you know, one of the interesting philosophical things we talk about is that when we have all this change, at each point in the change, a new generation comes through, usually people in their 20s, starts businesses, exits those businesses with multiple millions. And that, that has happened probably three or four times during my career. It's definitely happening at the moment. Is that a quick, quick overview for you? <laughs> yeah, no, that's fantastic. I, I find it really interesting because um, I'm, I'm now in my 20s myself mm. uh, and we, uh, and I, it's always good to have like a retrospective kind of look because I didn't really live through the, the like 90s and things like that. And it's interesting mm. to see because I take lots of that for granted. Um, yeah. You know, in the in the bigger scheme of things, the fact of having handheld cameras and things like that and how that must have, you know, underpinned everything. Um, yeah. But it's... If you think about why did studio shows ever happen? You know, if you'd watched mm -hmm. TV in the 1960s, for example, you would have seen two genres, essentially documentaries, which were shot with, you know, portable cameras still on tripods and then live shows, which had to be in studios. But that's really not the case anymore, is it? I mean, we, anyone yeah. can go live, you know, you, we, so we're going live now, in effect. So, so that's a real change. The other interesting thing is that some sectors that have seemed really unsexy through that whole period have suddenly become incredibly sexy. So a good example of that would be radio production. So I remember mm -hmm. friends of mine who were radio producers in the 90s and the 2000s who said, oh, we'll make some podcasts. And I remember everyone being really kind of sniffy about that and saying, oh, well, that's very nice. And, you know, I'm sure you make £2.50 out of doing that. And now these podcast companies are selling for multiple hundreds of millions of pounds to people like, to people like Spotify. And, you know, suddenly, so I suppose the, 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 the sort of point there might be, whatever you're doing, wait, if you wait long enough, it'll suddenly become really sexy. Yeah, unfortunately, we haven't quite had any offers just yet from Spotify for a few <laughs> hundred million for us. Uh, but it's been, yeah, no, I think we, we started a podcast because it's really, really interesting way to speak to people on a sort of low cost, simple medium that's quite open and honest. And I think, at least in my lifetime, there's been, uh, you know, kind of a res renaissance and a transition into, uh, you know, YouTubers and online creators and how essentially you get more of a raw aspect through than you would get through sort of a sculptured television lens so to speak yeah. um and i think you know it's no secret that the media world has changed and allowed that to happen you know if if there was still the requirement for big studio cameras we wouldn't have that with the internet mm -hmm. um but well, that's an interesting point, though. I think we might be planning to talk about it later on, but, but people sometimes say, you know, has, has television gone up the value chain? Has television got more expensive and pricing? And actually, the, the, it's not really as simple as that. It's more of a kind of explosion outwards because, because in the old days, you had te all television cost, you know, all video essentially cost between about 20,000 an hour and 500,000 an hour. And now you've got TV that costs 5 million an hour and TV that costs zero an hour. So, mm -hmm. so, so everything is impossible at every level. And you know we've all got 4K cameras in our pockets, which are good enough to, to broadcast on TV now, yeah. which is a phenomenal democratization. Of course, you know that, and we'll, I'm sure that we'll come back to that democratization as a, as a theme because it's very powerful, but it's also an enormous risk. 
And if you had to look through the kind of political lens at the last five years, really, you can see what, you know, how badly into trouble we can get once we allow everybody to, you know, propagate disinformation um, from their, you know, from their living room. But, yeah. but there's a huge appetite for it. I ran a, I had a startup called Civic Boom a few years ago. And we looked, we, it was this very thing, it was tackling, um, my background was, you know, getting news from source. And it was about, um, you know, when, um, um, you know, citizen journalism, remember that term, when mm. that was all coming up. And, and we, we looked at this whole, you know, the fact that we had these, these things in our pockets that we could become reporters. And we did some, um, you know, we, we worked with some big, big news organizations to test things out. And the, the thing that, that kind of, it, well, it, it failed for many different reasons, but the thing that came out of it was I knew there was this appetite for this, people want to participate, people want to be part of the conversation, they want, to be, mm. they want that, that reason to, to jump into things, but with that comes a, a really, really big responsibility. And it's where does that responsibility lie? And I think that that's, a, that's the, where we're at right now, is who's responsible for mm -hmm. these kinds of you know, initiatives or, or platforms or content. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, if anyone is responsible. If anyone is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, if anyone is responsible. It's kind of the, the idea of decentralization, isn't it? That nobody's mm. responsible and everyone's responsible at the same time. <laughs> it's, it's sort of, it's, pick, your, pick your word. I mean, disin, um, what's the word? Um, disintermediation is another word that's come up a lot. So, so no longer is it the case that if I want to get on get into the popular consciousness, I have to go via the TV commissioning editor, which would have been mm -hmm. certainly in the 1990s and, and more recently than that. You know. So that, you know, you, I think disintermediation has been a, both a hugely positive and hugely negative thing simultaneously. And you know, look no further than what happened in America in January to see, to see the downside of it. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, um, you know, it's an interesting period of time. And I think it's going to be interested to see how the media industry continues to evolve in the next five years and the next, you know, and onwards and around that. Well, the, good, um, but, the good news is that, you know, we're, we're sort of on a media-ish podcast, aren't we? And the, the good news <laughs> is that the media industry is bigger, stronger and more lucrative probably than it ever was. You know, it has yeah. more assets to it. I think one interesting observation I would make is that when I started out, there were essentially five paying clients or even four paying clients for a given piece of video that somebody might create, you know, kind of commercial advertisers, commercial TV or BBC, essentially, you know, mm -hmm. and, and now there's kind of millions. I mean, Facebook has what, five million small business advertisers. They all need, need content. Um, YouTube has an infinite number of viewers and advertisers. They all need content and so forth. So, so now, so now content makers, if you want to call yourself that in the media industry, have a much bigger yeah. footprint where they can play and hopefully monetize what they're going to make. Yeah. I think we've, you know, through our business and our work, we found just like, it's just, it feels like such a different world than it would, than it would have been literally, you know, pitching to four, four people. <laughs> it's yeah. just such a, I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting way. I, I, I found it fascinating how new business models have come up and how the kind of world of, you know, sales and things like that has just changed dramatically, I think, in, yeah. in my lifetime, at least. And also, don't forget that, the, you know, the sort of familiar argument that those four people that you would have been pitching to would all have been people I was at Oxford with. I mean, I would have probably known them all by name because I've probably been at Oxford with them all, you know. And I think that, that the, the, the fact that YouTube now exists, and so that filter, that kind of middle-class filter that was applied, you know, unfortunately, white middle-class filter as well, that was applied to all content making everywhere, is, is really no longer there. Now, I know there's plenty of 
road left to run in, in making British media properly diverse. But I think we shouldn't forget that quite a lot of progress has been made by virtue of the arrival of social platforms and the, the <laughs> diversification of the sheer number of outlets and so forth. So that's a, that's a good thing that's happened. I think. Yeah, and it absolutely shows the appetite for it because if you, if you, you know, the fact that there are spring up really um, excellent, diverse um, forms of content, but also narratives and stories from a diverse, diverse group of people. Mm, yeah. There is that appetite for it. And the narrow, the narrow view that some, you know, previous commissioners might have had is actually being really challenged now because people yeah. themselves, you know, there will be, people can just can start things up themselves and be a challenger. It might not be the, the big, you know, the super killer, but it can still challenge. And then, of course, that, 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 that narrative is also playing itself out at the global level. So, you know, one of the positives of Netflix is that they've been very proactive in commissioning content, non-English language content, not from Hollywood. You know, so they're, mm -hmm. they're really interested in the African market. They're, they're commissioning across Asia in multiple languages. And, you know, they've had hits everywhere from Spain to India, you know, to, to Nigeria. You know, so I think that when we look at the... Um, the provenance of content globally now, it's much more culturally rich than it hitherto had been. Again, yeah. a long way to go, and Africa's really only just getting, getting going. But I think if we were talking about, you know, the 2020s as a whole, what would we like to see? It would probably be, you know, 20 or 30 sources of great content as opposed to the two or three that were realistically there sort of in 2010, let's say. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really it's it's a really exciting time, and I think I'm always just I think the accessibility of you know content from different countries is just you know a lot more prevalent than it was even five years ago. I think yeah. you know I I look at the kind of media world today, and you see I, th I think it's just because of how Netflix has come in and disrupted the deal structure and everything like that that allows for you know different economies of scale to happen that wouldn't necessarily have happened in a traditional TV market yeah. um and yeah i think it's yeah i'm really i think it's it's made an exciting challenge for us in building a new business model out of that um but i think it's you know i think it's ever changing we think it's going to fundamentally change in the future again so yeah i'm sure it is so yeah. with that in mind if if you know we can we can see kind of like how um consumption media consumption tv is changing from a almost like a um, you know the cultural side, the, the social side, how much of that is driven by technology? How much is technology, and where is the technology going to drive those changes as well? Well, I think that you know the interesting thing about technology in the entertainment industry is that it's ever been thus. So uh, you know, if you were to if you could to go back to any period in Hollywood history, you would find that it was being driven by radical technological change. So one of the, one of the I teach at the National Film School and one of my brilliant students a couple of years ago did a project where she compared the earliest film, female film director, Alice Guy Blanchet, Blanchet with uh, one of the first female VR filmmakers or VR content makers, Anita Fontaine, and they were 100 years apart. And yet the issues that they were facing up to were kind of really quite similar in terms of what, what opportunity technology created for them and how that enabled them to um, you know, find new ways of telling stories and so forth. So I think it's, it's ever been nice and you can go to the late, you know, the early 30s for the arrival of sound or the early 50s, the arrival of color or the 70s for special effects. So I think it's, it's, it's always been there, technological change. But having said that, I think that the, the collision, I mean, and literally in ownership terms, the collision between the tech industry, which, which had hitherto been a different industry, 
and the content industry and the kind of productizing of content where it doesn't even need to earn money as content for many businesses like Amazon. It just has to be a kind of front of house, a, a kind of mannequin in the window, doesn't it, for the real business, which is cloud services or e-commerce or something like that. That's having a, a disproportionate and sort of accelerator effect. It's kind of paraffin being poured on the fire, isn't it? Yeah. So, yes, it's a remarkable period in, in any number of ways. And that's, you know, as consumers, we're obviously reaping the benefits of that because there are, there are so many new platforms and so many new shows. Um, and, and how that will play out across the 2020s is going to be absolutely fascinating for sure. Yeah. Now, I'd like to, your, your keen area of expertise and interest seems to be around AI. Um, what got you first interested in AI um, and how long have you been in sort of the AI game? Well, I mean, AI is it's fascinating because it's, it's, it's another step in the much wider story, which we already touched on, which is the kind of digitalization <laughs> of media, you know, and I think, I think one of the things you discover about AI is that it isn't a specific thing, it's a set of things, isn't it? It's a yeah. set of technologies which have many, many applications and those applications go far, far beyond media. So I actually mm -hmm. got interested in AI originally around other fields than media. So particularly I was interested, I still am actually in um, cyber, you know, military, fascinating, medicine, absolutely fascinating, e-commerce. I did my PhD around e-commerce and, and as you probably know, all the, all the big e-commerce companies are very heavily into analytics and AI and, and uh, you know, machine learning and everything that can essentially enable them to target um, each customer individually with the most apposite possible offer in terms of price, availability, you know, goods, pairings of goods and so forth like that. And I think, I think you know, the, the sort of analytics that lie behind predictively deciding what you think that consumer is most likely to do in the future is is the, is a set of analytics that then applies hugely across many other fields and, and got transported into the media i suppose most obviously with the recommendation engines in uh, spotify and netflix and it's no accident that, that those two platforms each with the, the sort of category defining use of ai are also the category defining applications in the sense that you know ai is what makes spotify spotify because it has better recommendations than any other music platform and, and therefore infinitely more scale, more relatability and so forth. So I got into, interested in AI via the bigger topic of AI, but once you start digging into media and everything that we've talked about so far, right the way from news journalism and disinformation on the one hand, right through to virtual production on the other, it's absolutely fascinating because there's scarcely a corner of media that's not, a, not being impacted. And so, for example, I'm writing a book at the moment, a textbook on the media and AI, which is, you know, sort of a, quite an interesting basic thing to do, but really, really um, hasn't been done actually. And I, I looked at 38 segments of the media and you could, you could say there were 42 or 31 or whatever, but I, I picked 38. And in every single one of those segments, it was quite obvious as I, as I was scripting this book, that the, um, the basic business model of that sector has been changed and will be changed further by artificial intelligence. So it's not something you can disregard. It's not something marginal. It's not, it's not a fad. It's something that is here to stay and is only going to have um, more, more and more significant impact both on the business model and in fact on the creativity itself, which is something we could talk about. You know, I, I'm sure we will talk about is, you know, to what degree do we want AI to be involved in the um, sort of filtering and creation of content itself. And that's a huge question. 
I think um, AI was one of the key areas, wasn't it, Lizzie, that got you and I interested in the media industry and how it could be used um, and how it could be applied. Um, I mean, you've just mentioned a couple of very interesting things, but I would say the one that, that stuck in my mind is about uh, how can we use AI in creativity? And I mean, we've been playing around with some different ideas around that. I'd love to hear what your, your sort of take on it is. Well, I was just reading, funnily enough, I was just reading a special report from Variety magazine about a couple of months, written a couple of months ago, and it starts with the quintessential Hollywood quote. Uh, William Goldman is a screenwriter who wrote Lord of the Flies. Um, I think he did, anyway. anyway uh, no, no, he didn't. That was William Golding. Sorry, no. But anyway, he's a screenwriter, very famous. He wrote Chinatown, didn't he? Um, but um, he said, in Hollywood, no one knows anything. And the, the point being that the, at the moment of creativity, it's actually unknowable. There's no, there's no set of metrics that could, that, could, that could tell you truly whether or not that project is going to succeed. But actually, in Hollywood now, there are a number of um, apps, for want of a better term, which would uh, pretend that they actually can tell you whether that content is going to succeed. So there's Scrapbook and Synalytic, both of which will read um, scripts. You know, so the machine reads scripts and give you an answer as to whether that script is likely to succeed in the market. And, and they would claim accurately predict the commercial revenue that that script is going to achieve in the market. Um, the same is true across music. There's many examples of software in the music industry now which um, would claim to be able to listen to songs and determine whether they're likely to be hits and so forth. So, so AI is, is being uh, proposed as a kind of filtering um, tool to enable people to decide which projects get greenlit and which not. And that's a, that's a very political issue in Hollywood because producers in the widest sense have always thought that that was their stock in trade and still do think that. And so you've got an interesting dichotomy there between the technology on the one hand, which is already being used to road test um, the commercial viability of projects by Netflix and Amazon and so forth like that, who are using obviously using all the analytics they've got to try and judge which projects to invest in, um, and whether whether that's then applicable in general across the whole field of creativity, excuse me, is a huge question which hasn't yet been answered. But boy, it's going to be a big one. Does that with I mean, what does that mean for artists and creatives and the creative industries and you know the 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 human side of it? Of the oh, it, can, it can be very powerful, and so on yeah. Spotify, if if if, if um, you know Spotify has three hundred million odd users, and and it and it's using its machine learning to to know the the taste of all those users, and a new artist comes along, and Spotify is able to accurately put that new piece of music into the you know recommendations to top whatever it's called pick of the week, whatever they call it, you know of those, then, then that can be a hugely powerful tool. And I, th I think I heard yesterday that. To be what to be on the playlist of the day, I forget the exact name of that, that playlist, but on Spotify is worth one hundred and eighty thousand dollars in marketing terms. So, Lizzie, to answer your question, it can be a very powerful distribution tool yeah. because you know this is digital marketing, isn't it? Ultimately, you know, in the same way that that Boohoo putting the right advert into your you know in, into your feed for the right dress because they know what kind of dresses you bought before. Same can be applied to music. We already know from Netflix that the recommendation engine is highly powerful. I was reading the other day that Netflix are now not only personalizing the imagery that you're shown from any given uh, program that's put into your feed, but now they're considering using AI to make bespoke trailers for each of their 170 million users, whatever it is, um, so as to, to put, the, put the most apposite possible video trail into your feed. You know? So these, are, these distribution uh, situations offer, offer huge advantages but, but, but of course, to, to, to sort of answer the implicit question you're saying, they also create implicit risks, which is 
who, who's doing the filtering? What, you know, what, what's, what's in the black box of the AI? What, what's it making its decisions based on? Exactly. Is it, yeah, is it racist? Is yeah, it, there could be biases, in, you know, because yeah. the person who's actually doing the developing, the person that's actually building those systems could have biases, unconscious, unconscious or other. But also, it, interestingly though, you could look at it, turn it around and say, well, if we've got all of these, we know that there are these multiple different niche markets so you've got these diverse audiences that want you know an audience over here might want something quite diverse to the other audience this side there there could be a wider opportunity for um for content because we're not doing one size fits all because that won't that won't necessarily work for a million two million three million ten twenty million people who have a particular interest in a particular subgenre yeah, well, I think that's really, you know, Brandon's initial question is kind of what's changed in your, in your sort of lifetimes that we're in media. And one, one simple answer I could have given would just been the long tail. Yeah. Because in the old days, you know, if you lived as I do near Manchester, you basically had to watch ITV, Channel 4 or BBC, and that was it. And so you were kind of served broadcast content in many ways. You know, and yeah. you could, if you maybe get a sort of specialist magazine, if you went to WH Smith's, you know, on railways or whatever. <laughs> But you couldn't share a common interest with people in Angola and people in Colombia and some some guy in Fiji and just you'd just be a little club of people who like that content. But, but, but that is now genuinely possible. And so so mm -hmm. that long tail can be can be found in a distribution terms and also monetized, which means that much more specialist content can viably be created, which is which yeah. is a huge opportunity. You know, so so I think to, to answer your original question. Yes, the, the, the AI offers phenomenal distribution opportunities and potential exploitation of you know, niche content a la long tail. Um, yes, there are big problems with the black box of AI and if you don't know what data it's being trained on or how it's training itself, you don't know whether it's being biased or not. And there are plenty of examples to behold of AI being biased, you know, some famous ones, you know, in terms of Twitter bots becoming racist and so forth like that, and much more subtle ones in terms of you know, uh, computer vision not being able to rec recognize black people as well as it can recognize white people, for example, um, because of the data sets that's been provided by the, you know, potentially unwittingly, but being provided have not been, um, if you like, gen race neutral, you know. So these are real risks. Um, and then the final thing we haven't really talked about is, is can you use AI itself for creativity itself, yeah. which is a really <laughs> fascinating thing, you know. So can you use um, you know, you probably heard of something called GPT-3, which is um, a sort of fancy, I think it's a general purpose transformer three, which is kind of an AI program essentially, which, which you can use to write poetry, write songs. There are lots of commercial companies now offering um, kind of songwriting AIs. There's one I saw today, I can't remember, uh, uh, Amadeus it's called, which will go back to, uh, to all the hit music back to the 17th century and look at the chord progressions and then offer to write you or help you write songs using the same chord progressions, but with contemporary sound, you know. Mm -hmm. so, so there's a huge range of tools. I saw some, someone, someone finished off a Dvorak symphony with an AI that they taught to compose like Dvorak because he hadn't got around to finishing it while he was alive. You know, there's, um, there's uh, all, all, manner of, all manner of tools available to people. And I think, you know, with the whole uh, non-fungible tokens or whatever, you know, the NFTs thing, now, now art has become empowered, what some would say, by, by AI. So, so I think we, we are definitely looking at a kind of creative opportunity in the 2020s, quite apart from the distribution one, which will be 
incredibly interesting. I'm not sure anyone quite knows where it's going to go. Yeah, I mean, we've been we've been heavily focused on this kind of content production side and everything like that, and how new technology can build in. Um, and you know, one of the areas that I think that has interest us the most, and you wrote some fantastic articles um, covering it, is sort of the rise and you know the application of virtual production. Yeah. Um, for our audience, can you explain what virtual production is? Well, in, in two words, the Mandalorian. So, mm -hmm. so essentially, um, in the old days, uh, you, if you wanted to put an actor against a backdrop when they weren't really there, you use something called green screen, which you probably all experience with Zoom, where you essentially have a green screen behind you, and that's a kind of neutral color that's able to be projected upon in order to put a background behind you. And, but we all know from having seen kind of Hitchcock films that it's never quite credible, or at least it gets, it's difficult to make very credible. And part of that is to do with the lighting, which is very difficult to light the individual and the screen in such a way that the, the lighting is realistic and the two marry. And part of it's to do with things like something called parallax, which is where if, if, if I move a camera slightly one way, the background, if you think about it, would move dif differently in relation to the foreground and, and therefore create a three-dimensional awareness in space. And what virtual um, production does is sort of solve those problems and more. So essentially it enables you to project um, computer generated, but extremely realistic images onto huge screens behind an actor and above an actor, which, would, which will then locate them in a scene without them ever leaving the studio, but with the light and the parallax being, being being, as it were, uh, related to the movements of the actor. So the actor moves in one direction, the parallax will work, the lighting will change according to what was on the background because it's the screen itself that's doing the lighting. And that's the technology that came from, amongst other places, um, Epic Games, uh, who, who sort of essentially used the, the, the experience of Fortnite to subsidize the technology and almost give it to the entertainment industry for free in the early years. I'm sure it won't ever be thus. Um, and now there's some 150 studios around the world which are capable of doing that. And you know, some of the best exploitations of it have been seen in things like The Mandalorian, which, is, which has incredibly high production values. And if you listen to Hollywood um, producers talking, they will say this is one of the biggest technological revolutions that's ever been found in Hollywood. It's really that significant because it's enabled them to do far more with their studios. And then there are other tools and tricks as well, which in terms of putting individuals um, into backgrounds, matting people into other, other shots and so forth like that, which are made far, far quicker in a kind of click and drag way than, than they ha ever have been before. So you're seeing a true revolution in production values um, in Hollywood at the moment because of that technology, which has come from the gaming industry. Yeah, well, we, um, my original startup was in the gaming industry. Um, and that's kind of where the kind of interest peaked into the media world and how the story goes with Lizzie and I and, and that sort of aspect. And I think, you know, the, it's, it, for me, it was a really exciting application. And I think it's kind of been skyrocketed further through COVID because it, you know, when we were doing analyses of it and such, it's, you know, it reduces the need for going outside and doing expensive location shoots and things like that. It brings it in. Um, and do you think that there is going to be, obviously right now, The Mandalorian was an extremely expensive production. I think it was around $10 million an episode or something like that, if my memory serves me correctly. But do you think methods like virtual production and such can actually reduce the cost of content um, or do you think it's just going to continue to propel content upwards 
Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure it will. Again, as to my earlier answer, I think it'll explode the equation outwards so that, so, mm -hmm. that it, so that it both facilitates the highest end and also the you know the the cottage user, as it were. And I think all all the you know all the technological change we've seen uh, hitherto has has done that as well. So I think I think we can mm -hmm. see it being put in the pocket of the everyday producer, absolutely on their phone. Aren't yeah. Because that's what we find really, really interesting is obviously, you know, right now it's having its sort of re renaissance in sort of Hollywood, but I'm part of this like Facebook group that's all around sort of the Unreal Engine and how they're using it in virtual production. And every day you see a different studio in a different country, you know, some people are literally in their bedrooms building virtual production setups with their televisions. I yeah. think it's, it, it completely, I think, changes the, the kind of, cost equation of what you could produce at the lower end for sure yeah. because it it, oh. it it gives you kind of an infinite world to shoot out of because the other thing we haven't talked about we've talked about the backgrounds we haven't talked about the foregrounds yeah. because to that cost argument um now those technologies are also being used with kind of meta humans or, yeah. or whatever your catchphrase is where mm -hmm. where totally fake individuals are created but with extreme verisimilitude i mean you just can't yeah. tell the difference both as stills originally, but now also as video. And there's a couple of great videos online. If you just search most of the humans on YouTube, you'll find them. And what you've essentially got there is a kind of, to put it in facile terms, a kind of human Photoshop, where you have some sliders where you can create an individual, then age them up and down, change their ethnicity up and down, and so forth. And if you go back to that cost question you asked, for instance, in the world of advertising, you know, companies are considering whether when they're doing a shoot, they could, they could have 10 different actors for 10 different target audiences, but with the same shoot, and none of those actors would actually have been real. Yeah. So, so I think it's, it's, it's almost scary how good, uh, mm -hmm. I think the, the rate at which technology has changed in the past few years, the, I think it's almost scary how quickly, I mean, when the um, Unreal brought out the sort of meta humans, I think it was a few months ago now, it, to me, it was like, oh my gosh, we're at this stage already. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you think, though, with that, the, you know, the, you've got the meta humans and you've got the humans. Um, do you think that there will be a, in time, an appetite for real human content, you know, so that people will pay a premium, maybe, for real content? You know, I'm being serious because it's the, it's the original. You know, it's an original thought. It's an original thing. It, it, you can't, you can create a, a meta-human, but the human is the original. And I'm just thinking about this because mm -hmm. of our experiences with, you know, the lockdown this last year. We've all been behind the screens. Our, 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 um, our engagement with online events, things like that, isn't the same as real world. We are aching to get out to the real world, you know, Glastonbury is my mecca because right? <laughs> you know, I've got that for next year, and mm. I'm just wondering whether that actually, you know, whether we'll 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 find that there is also a, a an area a niche for real human. There'll be a kind of like yeah. a we want the real human, what we want it produced by humans, we want it created by humans. And yeah, that's, that's it replaces it, but it's as well as that's the kind of analog movement, isn't it? You know, and yeah. It's yeah, yeah, a place for it. Um, I think there are infinite, infinite sort of dimensions to that question. So, you know, I think the Turing, the famous Turing of uh, imitation game fame, you know, had the Turing test, which I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was essentially, if I, if I have a conversation with the AI, can I tell whether it's an AR or a human or not, essentially? Yeah. And um, 
I think one one interesting answer to your question is, you know, when when do we think there will be, you know, if you like video bots, which are so true to life that you can't tell the difference. Funny enough, one of the things I was thinking the other day was, could we do a blind date show where you essentially have um, a human with three uh, potential dates, like in the quintessential blind date format, but only two of them, are no, you know, are actually real humans. And if they pick the right one, then they get to go to the island, whatever the island's called. Yeah. You know, Fernando's. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's kind of the Turing test, isn't it? You know, so I, th I think I think all these dimensions are, you know, quite dystopian. Can probably get can probably have upside and downside, and well, they're going to be with us because you can't uninvent these things, you know. And and um, just on that other question, so so in terms of sort of using fake humans for if you like human roles in the media, of course that's already being done. So people like the Associated Press use bots to write articles now. Yeah. So it's for the mo the more mechanistic style of kind of financial reporting is often done by. Um, bots or, or AIs or whatever you want to call them, you know, so so I think this is with us and I think I think it will probably continue to be with us I don't think it's something to be afraid of but it is something to consider because it is really radically changing a lot Yeah, I think it's 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 just been so so I think interesting just to see what You know what the potential of it is and I think we we've sit we sit in meetings every week don't we Leslie and we're coming up with new concepts and new ideas <laughs> and I sit here going would an AI be able to do this quicker and give us a year's worth of ideas in 10 minutes you know there are we haven't talked about this actually but there are certain mechanistic things in media production that AI is just fantastic at yeah. so for example anyone's ever made a TV show knows that you get all these rushes you know you record all these interviews and then you, you don't know what anyone said, so you have to employ someone to transcribe it. Well, they used to, but now it's a drag and drop, and the AI will do it in five minutes. You know, it's the same with imagery. You 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 have a as a TV production company, you have shelves full of um, drives with what they call TVs on or views, general views, I think it stands for, where you know that you've been to New York five times and got five five different shoots worth of shots of New York, but no one knows where they are. Again, AI can just crawl through that, and you can just hire supercomputers by the hour that will just look at your rushes and tell you what's yeah. in them. So some of the sort of mechanical process of making media has become more fun, basically, yeah. because some of these really rote tasks have been um, removed, which is great, actually. Yeah, so we, yeah, yeah. yeah, we've been seeing applications of it and, and using applications in like the edit suite and things like that as well, because it's like mm. you can pull together. We can shoot with multiple cameras and pull together the best cut of an interview or multiple cuts of an interview really, really quickly without mm. needing to rely off of hiring uh, a human to essentially do that kind of boring work to do that. And although I would say right now the technology isn't perfect, it is getting nearer and nearer and nearer in terms of how you you know just you know in kind of sharing your vision of what you want for the future that's so interesting so you could have a studio set up with kind of six um fixed cameras if you like and then you could say rather than a sort of photoshop or premiere loot type of way you could just say i want this i want this edited like the mtv video awards or i want this edited like a news broadcast or i want it edited like a 1950s broadcast then it would just do a different edit style yeah. for each one which would be pretty easy to do i should imagine um but really really useful again you know, yeah. I, suppose, I suppose from the perspective of broadcast or creative workers, you have to say, what are the jobs that are going to be um, unique, if you like, and what are the jobs that are going to be under threat? And I think back, going back to your earlier question, I would like to think that the jobs that are going to remain unique are the ones that, that really require that creative leap. 
Mm. Um, I, I heard someone, one of the bosses of Netflix the other day saying, there was no predictive analytics that said that a series about a female chess champion would be a global hit. And so in the, and the thing about analytics is that they are by their nature retrospective, aren't they? Because they're mm -hmm. trained on retrospective data. And so if you if to go to your question about well, what's the role, what's the continuing role for the human, you could say, well, it's the role to take the imaginative leap that, that couldn't have been spotted in the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I, and, I, and I think that is, that's what it's, obviously the technology excites me, but also that element also excites me, the element that we can still surprise. And it's not, yeah. the, you know, the, the, we know that, you know, even back down to, was it ABBA who you could take their songs and put it down to a mathematical formula? You know, so they, right. they probably didn't realise they were doing it, but there's, <laughs> you know, there's formulas. We all know there are formulas. There's a story arc. We know that, you know, we, yeah. we, we know that there are these rules that apply. Yeah. Out, so they've always been there. Shakespeare yeah. was the <laughs> genius at it. But <laughs> what, what excites me is that there is this, uh, I'm excited about that collision of the human and technology. And it's mm. not that one's better than the other, it's actually what can be achieved together. And that, and that also these, these wonderful surprises can come up. The Queen's Gambit was one of them. I, I bought mm -hmm. a chess set because, well, I bought one for Christmas <laughs> because I enjoyed it so much. Never would I have thought that I would be in possession of a chess set and actually enjoy it because of a TV show that was actually, that was made because nobody thought it would, you know, it was, it's magical things like that. that mm -hmm. actually, yeah. Well, interesting, chess, chess is a good example because I think DeepMind, which is a London-based AI company, um, I think they, they, they tried human versus AI and the AI one. And then they tried human plus AI versus AI and the human plus AI one. And I think that's a sort of metaphor for how the 2020s might go actually. In, you know, in other words, the combination of human and artificial intelligence will outperform artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. I, my final question, because I'm aware of the time, is, um, and it kind of links to the excitement I feel like we're all sharing about the media, <laughs> you know, the media space of the future. Which media company excites you the most right now? Yes, you asked me this question in advance. And I was thinking about it, and I mm -hmm. think um, I'm going to give you a sort of tangential answer, which is that, um, that I teach um, uh, the marketing course at Oxford, and um, I found, as you probably know, because I think you've done it too, that the, it's quite a sort of conversation-based teaching style in business schools. And mm -hmm. um, you ask a question and then you get answers back. And I found myself banning the FANG stocks and, and Spotify as answers because uh, otherwise, whatever question you ask, like who's good at customer service or who's got the best customer lifetime value, any question you ask, someone would always say either Amazon, Facebook or Google basically. And so I banned the FANG stocks and said, all right, I want examples from around the world. And uh, it was absolutely revelatory because all of a sudden people were saying, well, there's this company in Indonesia and they're doing this. And there's this company in Nigeria and they're doing this. So I think to answer your question, what media company most excites me? It's actually, you know, the, the South Korean company that created the, the Masked Singer format, you know, or the, the Nigerian company that's going to make the hit for Netflix. In other words, it's the, it's the, com the companies that are coming from, if you like, non-traditional places that are going to really shake up the content world in the 2020s, rather than me saying it's Warner Brothers because they had the guts to not put their movies in cinemas for a year or something, which are essentially kind of quick commercial decisions. I think that what's really going to inspire us in the 2020s culturally is content that comes from places that we weren't getting content from before. Yeah. That, and that certainly, for me, that excites, as a, as a consumer, that really excites mm -hmm. me. That mm -hmm. really, 
you know that that's yeah. you know it truly feels that things are opening up and it's exciting yeah. for those for those particularly africa i think africa's a really fascinating um uh, you know potential market I, i'm really excited to see what comes out of africa mm, yeah. yeah well thank you for your time today um yeah. alex where can people find out more about you um, yeah, so I, I think LinkedIn's a good place. You just look me up, Alex Connock, that's C-O-N-N-O-C-K on LinkedIn. That's the best place. I find, I've, I sort of opted out of a few of the other social platforms because I found them, that the, the whole argument of last year <laughs> got too intense. I just didn't want to read all that stuff anymore. So what I like about LinkedIn is it's just all positive and happy. So yeah. LinkedIn's a good place. Everyone's always sharing their great news, aren't they? Yeah, it's never like, nobody's like, oh, I lost my job. They're like, no, yeah. I got a new job. Yeah, they're always <laughs> humbled to say when you know they're anything but humbled and they're just posting. Yeah. But at least they're not being mean to each other. And I think, you know, that, uh, the reason I kind of left Twitter is that I just couldn't bear everyone being mean to each other all the time. So yeah. I would love to hear from people on LinkedIn. It's, I'm always happy to hear from people. So yeah. And, and I would say, I, and from our research and everything, I would strongly recommend everybody to give a read of your articles, which are on the, uh, the Oxford side blog. Um, yeah. They're really, really interesting and insightful if you want to learn more about the space anyway um it's it feels like i spent months and months and months researching and you compressed it all into to three <laughs> three articles <laughs> I think what's, what's good about this subject is that everyone you know we could go down the street in bolton and and ask anyone in the street and they would know about all of this that's what's wonderful about this topic because because everyone knows what spotify is and everyone knows what's on netflix and everyone's seen the queen's gambit and so forth so i think there's the sort of cultural common denominators make this a really really good top topic for discussion actually and i yeah. also think i i do some work around getting young people into the creative industries i'm on a, an advisory board for a particular initiative and that's what excites me is that because it's part of the conversation because everyone can relate to it i think for the creative industries moving forward in the uk it's a hugely exciting time so long as the opportunities are there that they can open up and you know obviously get the diverse voices in but it's it's really exciting time for all of us mm -hmm. well thank you very much for having me yeah thank you and lizzie where can people find out more about you just find me at lizziehodgson.com that's it yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you can find more about me at uh, at Brandon Ralph and everything called brandonralph.com. Um, thank you for listening, uh, and we'll see you all soon. Thank you. Thank you. A Studio B production.